The announcements are going to get boring to the same basic announcements. Uh, is conference, I'm still working on the title, but it's uh, uh, under, something around, uh, along the lines of understanding the importance of Israel, contemporary issues in the Middle East. And so that will be September 8th. We're going to do Thursday night, Friday night, three hours, roughly 9 to noon on Saturday, and then uh, Sunday night. Sunday morning's not part of the conference. We'll be doing Sunday morning uh, as well. And I'm still finalizing a few details on the brochure. If I didn't have 15,000 other things going on, I could probably get that finished too. So that's uh, what's going on. How shall young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer uh, in order to make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord. There is an emphasis in Scripture on being cleansed. And again and again, we have commands to examine ourselves, to be cleansed, to strip off or remove the uh, defiled clothing of certain sins. All of these represent uh, the command to be uh, sanctified, to be spiritually in right relationship with the Lord. And the description that we have in 1 John 1, 9 in a conditional clause states how that is accomplished. It's through confession. There we're told if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The flip side of that positive statement is that if we don't confess sin, then we're not forgiven and we're not cleansed. That means we walk in darkness and we're not walking in the light. So it's important to keep short accounts with God to make sure that we are uh, walking with him and that God the Holy Spirit can produce uh, fruit in our lives in many, many different ways uh, as we conduct our lives as parents, as grandparents, as employers, as employees, uh, as we go about our daily life in whatever daily ministry God has given us, as well as uh, maybe some ministries where we serve the Lord in the local church. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's such a great privilege we have as fallen, sinful, corrupt human beings to be saved by grace, not on the basis of who we are or what we've done, but according to your mercy. You saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, saved by the death of Christ on the cross who paid the penalty in our place. And Father, we've been given a new life to nourish, to nurture, to grow, and Father, as we do this, we are faced with a myriad of challenges in our daily lives related to are we going to apply your word to this situation or are we going to live on the basis of the culture, the ideas and values of the people around us responding to peer pressure, or are we going to uh, take the narrow road and walk in terms of, the, of your word and the Holy Spirit? Father, as we continue our study in Samuel, help us to understand the lessons that are taught here, the lessons exhibited in the failure of Saul, and as we get into David soon, the positive as well as the negative that we'll learn uh, in his life as well, for these lives exhibit important doctrinal truths for us. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. We're in 1 Samuel 15, so you may want to turn there. I want to remind you what we've been studying in terms of these these verses. Uh, central important verse in 1 Samuel, I think, is these, these verses, verses 22 and 23 that we have in 1 Samuel chapter, chapter 15, because this is a fulcrum on which the narrative turns. Uh, this is going to uh, 
lead in this last set of ten verses or so to the announcement that the kingdom will be taken from Saul, although he remains king probably for another uh, ten years or so, uh, he will have the kingdom and the possibility of a dynasty taken from him because of sin. So we're dealing with, we'll deal with in this passage his confession, but also that there are consequences to sin even when we, we confess. But there's still some things we need to finish in our study of verse 23 last time, which is the, one of the most significant uh, verses in the Old Testament. For rebellion is as the sin of, and it should be divination rather than witchcraft, For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and defiance or insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected or repudiated the word of the Lord, he also has rejected or repudiated you from being king. Now, we started this last time, and I went through a group of verses focusing on the role of authority in Scripture. Now, this is not a subject that any of us really likes to be reminded about. There's not a person here who isn't a a rebel at heart. It's real easy for us to talk about humility and submission to authority when the authority over us is telling us to do something that we like, telling us something to do something that we agree with, uh, telling us to do something that is going to benefit us. But it doesn't take submission to authority to be able to follow that kind of authority. In fact, if you have an authority over you that you're always in agreement with and they're always telling you to do what you want to do, you're not being tested in the area of authority. The test of authority comes when the person who is in authority over you is telling you or asking you to do something that you don't really think is wise. Now, I'm not using the word sin or something that is inherently wrong or morally wrong, but something you just don't think is the best decision, something you don't think is a wise decision, maybe something you don't think is an appropriate decision. Every one of us has found ourselves in situations in life where we've had a teacher or a coach or a commanding officer in the military or a pastor or someone, a teacher, someone in a position of authority over us, husband, father, uh, parent, and has told us to do things that we just don't want to do. And we think that person in authority is incompetent, that they are uneducated in the area. We think that they are uh, someone that, that doesn't have a clue, and we're probably right in all of those areas. But that doesn't justify insubordination or disobedience. We may be right. It may be a better course of action to do X, Y, and Z, and it may, if we're in a business environment, Though the course of action that we have may be brilliant, it may make us successful if followed, it may make the company wealthy. But if the boss says to do something else, and we know it's going to be a failure, it doesn't matter what you think, and it doesn't matter what I think, because that person's the person who makes the decisions. And in many situations in life, we're faced with people who are inadequate being put in a position of authority over us. And that's where humility comes in. I cannot think of a better example. We have it talked about in Philippians 2, 5 to 11 with the Lord that he humbled himself by being obedient to go to the cross. But let's flesh that out a little bit. As we're studying in Matthew in that last week of Christ on the earth, these arrogant, uh, overeducated, legalistic, high-handed Pharisees and chief priests who are so impressed with how well they know the Scripture, how well they think they know the Scripture, how well they've developed a system of application. They know truth better than anybody knows truth. And Jesus is going to submit to them to the point where he's going to be uh, sent to the cross. Now, that's humility, 
we think that, no, we're not going to let that so-and-so destroy my life. We're not going to let that so-and-so destroy this company that I'm working for. You know, Jesus didn't think that way, did he? You know, I'm just trying to put another spin on what it means to be humble and obedient to a legitimate authority that's over us. And that's what the scripture emphasizes. And it's not easy. It's not supposed to be easy. If it was easy, being humble wouldn't be a problem. Okay? This is where difficulty hits. And it hits uh, whether we're a student whether we are an athlete, whether you're in the military, whether you're a wife, whether you're a, a child, whether you are a husband under the authority of God, under the authority of bosses at work who are telling you how much you need to, to work, that's, that's the challenge of this whole issue of, of humility and obedience. And I pointed this out some last time in all those verses I looked at. But the question may arise, aren't there exceptions? Isn't there some wiggle room here somewhere? (laughs) That's what everybody wants. I want some sort of justification for why I don't have to obey a commander-in-chief who's a Marxist slob who is destroying the country. Okay? We all have these kinds of thoughts, but you know, we can't go that down that road if we are obeying the Word, because the Word is exceptionally clear about these things. Now, the question is, is there in the Scripture a legitimate basis for violating authority? Remember, we have these hard verses. Sunday morning when I taught in Matthew, I taught about the uh, episode where the uh, uh, disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians came to trap Jesus with the question, should we pay the tax to Rome? Now, a lot of people want Jesus to say no, because we don't like paying taxes. If I had a, uh, if I was inclined to have everybody hold up their hands, you know, we never do that around here. If I said, how many people here enjoy paying taxes? I don't think anybody would raise their hand because we don't like paying taxes. When, when, when my wife was teaching school, she used to do a little, for second graders, she would do a little economics module for the kids, and they would take, um, they would take Monopoly money, and she would figure out, she had a system where she would pay them for doing certain things. And this would go on for two or three days, and they would accumulate their money, and then they would come to payday. And then payday, she would go around and she would give everybody their money, and they would get uh, several hundred or thousand dollars or more, and everybody would, oh, you know, some of them would have a lot, some of them would have, wouldn't have so much. And then she would say, okay, now that I've paid you, now we have to pay our taxes. And then she would go back and she would start taking money away. Oh, those kids just went nuts. It was a great lesson. She would start taking away. She would start doing the withholding and taking the money, and they were just, they were in shock, sort of like you and I were the first time we got a paycheck, and we thought it would be a certain amount of money, and we looked at it, and it was, wasn't quite what we thought it would be, and we saw this thing called withholding, probably went to our parents and said, what's this, and got our first lesson in socialist economics. Um, because we saw that Social Security was taken out. And when you're 14 or 15 years old, Social Security is not something you're really concerned about at that point. <laughs> you, want, you would rather keep that money to spend it on whatever, whatever pleasures you have at that point. So uh, the Scripture says, though, that we're to pay taxes. And Jesus did a wonderful job sidestepping that. And it's the point there is that Rome was enforcing a horrible system of taxation. There was tax farming. Uh, I don't know if you know that term, but they would farm the taxing out to various uh, uh, members of the equestrian order, and then they would go into the provinces like Judea, and they would hire people, and they would say, we need this amount of money. And the the tax uh, people that they hired, like uh, Levi, who's known to us as Matthew, would go out and, and he could keep whatever he raised over that amount. So it was really open to tremendous abuse. And so the people were significantly oppressed and the economy was oppressed because of this excessive taxation. 
But Jesus didn't criticize the tax system of Rome. Jesus said, who made the coin? Whose image is on it? Caesar. Well, render unto Caesar what is his and render unto God what is his. He didn't say, well, this is a horrible, unjust system. You don't need to pay all of that tax. That's what everybody wishes that he would say. But that's not what he says. Because the principle of authority emphasizes the authority of the government, even when the government is wrong, not morally, spiritually wrong, but in terms of doing something that is foolish and unwise. And so we have these passages like Titus 3.1, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. Romans 13.1, let every soul, you're not an exception, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that are exist are appointed by God. 1 Peter 2.13, therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king is supreme or to governors or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Sent, for those, um, sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, that includes police officers and submission to If a lot of people would just keep calm and do what a police officer said to do when they asked you to, when they pulled you over on the road, then you wouldn't have a problem. I've learned that by experience. I've never been in a position where I didn't do the right thing, but I've never had a problem because I've always done the right thing. Now, there is an exception in Scripture, and the exception in Scripture is when the governing authority is telling you to do something and that God specifically prohibits now, I had a friend of mine, acquaintance of mine, back in high school and college, who I heard about later on. He went back to his home state of Oregon or somewhere at some point, and he got in trouble with the IRS because he believed that tax law was, according to the Constitution, should not have uh, have a progressive taxation system like we have for income tax. And so he didn't pay it. He says it's not just, so I'm not. I'm justified in not paying it. Wrong. And and he, he got in trouble. Uh, you can have an extrapolated principle, but that's not how this works. If God says don't do something, and the government says do it, that's what I mean. It's got to be specific in black and white. This is the situation we have in Acts four. When the Sanhedrin calls uh, Peter and John in, and they commanded them in Acts 4.18 not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Now, they whether they had the right to do that or not is not what is at issue in the text. They don't get challenged. Peter and John say, you don't have any right to do that. They didn't because it was... They were putting themselves in the place of God, but that's not how they argued. They said, God told us to do this. You're telling us not to do it. We have to obey God rather than man. That's the bottom line. It was specific. Jesus told them to proclaim the gospel. They were telling them, don't proclaim the gospel. Guess who wins? Jesus wins all the time. They weren't saying, well, there's this general principle that we ought to be telling people the truth. It's a specific that's stated in the Scripture, a thou shalt or a thou shalt not. So all of this is is important. Now, we're in a situation in our world today where Christians are going to run into more and more conflicts, especially at the workplace. Now, this can come down in a number of different ways. It can come down because you're mandated to uh, follow and support uh, certain social policies that get handed down through human resources. It may not be as big a problem if you're working for a large corporation, but you may be working for the government. You may be working in public education. You may be working for the military. You may be working for the post office. You may be working in any number of, of uh, positions 
And now that they have recognized and legitimized same-sex marriage and they're pushing the policy of transgender restrooms, you may be put in a position where you have to validate, verify, and authorize some of this. Well, if you're a Christian, you have the right to practice your religion. That's the, fir- that's the First Amendment. You, and that doesn't restrict it to just what's inside the four walls of the church. In fact, there was a recent attempt in, uh, to force a church to comply with restroom policies under a civil rights law from, in Iowa from 2007 that was being interpreted that uh, a church, if it was a re- only if it was a religious service, could a church just have a male and a female restroom. That if they had other things going on, if they had a private school or they had uh, some sort of community meetings there uh, in their church, that those were not religious activities. In fact, even Sunday morning was excluded from a religious service because in their definition, it could not include any meeting open to the public. And so they were trying to force this church that to to comply with this and to uh, have uh, transgender restrooms and uh, some of the uh, you know American Family Association, some other legal groups um, pointed out a few things and they had to back off. But these kinds of things are constantly being brought up, constantly being uh, being pushed. If you were in the military. And you have to recognize that somebody has a legitimate claim to be uh, some other sex than the one that is on their birth certificate, then you have to validate that and you have to call them by certain pronouns and run into a lot of silliness. Well, you have to decide how you are going to handle that in the military. And there and, and in, in many other situations, if you are in education. And it may be the policy of the school district or the state that you teach Darwinian evolution. You may even live in a state where it is prohibited to teach the models of creation and the models of evolution so that students can make up their mind. There are some states where you can't do that. You have to, by by policy and law, you have to teach evolution as if it is fact. So as a teacher, you have to decide how you're going to do that. And um, I know that in some school districts in Texas, because of the nature of Texans and the nature of, uh, of the influence of Christianity here, there are a lot of teachers that are in districts that technically are supposed to teach evolution, but they never seem to be able to find time to fit that into the schedule because there's so many other things related to science to teach. And so they just never quite get around to it. And there are others who find other ways to do it. What it comes down to is that you have two models that we have in, in Scripture in the book of Daniel. You have two situations in Daniel that have to be the pattern for every believer because Daniel, more than any other book, teaches us by example of how a believer should live in a corrupt pagan environment. And you had this, these young Jewish, uh, observant Jewish believers, young boys, who were taken to Babylon and went through a three- or four-year indoctrination period of study where they were going to be prepared to be bureaucrats in the Babylonian Empire. And they were supposed to eat the food that the Babylonians ate, and it wasn't kosher, and they were supposed to... Um, they were supposed to uh, imbibe all of the religious ideals of, ba- uh, of the Babylonian culture, and they were to be just absorb all of the worldview of that pagan culture. And in Daniel chapter 1, we're given one situation. In Daniel chapter 3, we're given another situation. In Daniel chapter 6, we're given another situation. And let's look at these. Daniel 1 is a diet issue. And Daniel prays about it, goes to Ashpenaz, who's the chief eunuch, and says, let's try a little experiment. Now, this isn't done out in the open. He's showing a lot of wisdom. He's not going to challenge him in front of everybody, not going to put his ego on the line. 
he goes and he says, let's just try this out. Let's have a little experiment for a couple of weeks, and the Jewish boys are going to eat kosher, and at the end of two weeks, we're going to see who's brighter, who is healthier, who does a better job, and, uh, and at the end of those weeks, uh, the Jewish boys who were eating kosher were outperforming all of the others. And so he said, well, this, the Ashpenaz said, well, this isn't a bad deal. So one way in which we can approach it is go to the person in authority and see if we can work out some sort of compromise, some sort of scenario where it's a win-win scenario. You negotiate the deal. This is what happened when uh, last year after the Supreme Court uh, ruling related to same-sex marriage. For example, in North Carolina, there were uh, justices that said, we're not going to uh, violate our conscience by performing a same-sex marriage. We're Christians. And so they worked out a deal where the non-Christian judges could come in in, in place of the Christian judges to do that. And it all worked out and, and uh, did, did okay. In some other places, for example, in Kentucky, uh, you had the, the, uh, the judge who was obstinate, and he didn't want to compromise. I think eventually they did work out a compromise, and, and the um, uh, county clerk was able to keep her job, and somebody else would do the, uh, would do the marriages. But there are some cases where you can work out that compromise, some cases where you can't work out a compromise. That's Daniel 3. Nebuchadnezzar set up his statue. Everybody's got to worship the statue when the orchestra plays. Everybody bows down to worship the statue except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, otherwise known as uh, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. They're Hebrew names. And they refused to bow down. And they said, you know, our God is able to save us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down. We're not going to violate our religious beliefs for some sort of, even if it's expedient to do so, so that we can keep our jobs and everything will run smoothly. We're not going to compromise. And Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm not going to compromise either. You didn't do it, so you're going to reap the penalty. You're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. Sometimes we're not going to be able to to work out a or negotiate a deal with the person in authority who wishes to force us to violate our uh, religious beliefs, our biblically held beliefs, and we're going to have to suffer the consequences. We're going to lose our job. We're going to be put in jail. We're going to be thrown in prison. We're going to be martyred. Those are the options. The third situation we have in Daniel is in Daniel chapter 6 when the Medes, uh, when, when the advisors to King Darius uh, convince him that he needs to pass a law that will prohibit anyone in the kingdom from making a petition to any human being or even a god during the next 30 days. And so he, he uh, signs that into law, and it's unbreakable. It's the law of the Medes and the Persians. He has to, he has to uh, uh, obey it. And the penalty is that if you are caught praying or seeking or beseeching somebody uh, other than the king, then you're going to be thrown into a den of lions. What does Daniel do? Daniel doesn't throw it in his face. He doesn't say, okay, I'm going to disobey you. He's not arrogant or insubordinate in that way. He doesn't say, okay, I'm going to pray and get on his knees right in front of Darius and, uh, and make a federal case out of it right there. He goes home very quietly in the privacy of his home, fully aware of the fact that the NSA is spying on him. <laughs> and, uh, and he prays. And, of course, they uh, bring the evidence before Darius, and Darius is forced to arrest him and throw him in the lion's den, and God protects him. Now, God, as, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, but even if our God doesn't save us, we're still going to obey him. And that's the principle. And it's how we obey the Lord. You don't obey the Lord in some sort of arrogant, in-your-face, rebellious uh, mentality. You don't flip, flip them off or do anything like that. You just very graciously and kindly take your position and take your, take your stand. So all of this is part of, part of what's going to uh, be our lives in the coming years. So we have to recognize that 
as the culture shifts more and more into an anti-divine establishment uh, mode that this is going to um, uh, characterize things. Since the 1960s, we've had this gradual erosion of the biblical conviction that the sexes, while are while being totally equal in their being, God created them in His image, male and female, so that men and women are ontologically. There's a big word for you. Ontologically equal. Men aren't better than women, and women are better than men, but they have different roles, different functions, just like a football team. Doesn't The quarterback is not a better human being than, or he might be, but in terms of who he is as a human, he's not superior or inferior to the running back. He has talents and skills. The running back has talents and skills. They have different functions. You can't, the, the roles are not interchangeable. The devil's lie that has been bought by everybody in this culture and more Christians and maybe more of you than you're willing to admit is that the, the sexes' roles are interchangeable. Just because a man can do what a woman can do and a woman can do what a man can do doesn't mean they, it's right to do it. Just because a, a, a woman has the ability to teach and she has certain uh, rhetorical, natural rhetorical gifts doesn't mean that she should get in the pulpit because she has a better, does a better job of it and is more entertaining than a man. There may be a man who is truly gifted by God with the gift of pastor teacher, but he may not be the most rhetorically stimulating guy in the world. You've got a lot of people. We have some pastors in this city who have incredible natural uh, oratorical skills, and they bring thousands of people to listen to them. But it doesn't have anything to do with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So, so just because somebody can do it doesn't mean that it's the right thing to do or that God has gifted them to do it. But once we buy the lie that men and women are functionally interchangeable, and we bought that lie, 90% of the people in this country, even Christ, evangelical Christians, bought into that lie by 1980. And I was railing against this back when I was in seminary, that because they were buying into this and they didn't understand this distinction, that eventually we would be exactly where we are today where people can determine their own gender and their own sexuality and everything else because everything is equivalent and everything is interchangeable and that men are no different. In fact, if you go talk to, to, um, to, to most of these postmoderns, they firmly believe that there's not even a physical difference between men and women. I mean, you can stand butt naked in front of a mirror and they're not going to admit that there are physiological differences between men and women. makes you really wonder why, if there are no physiological differences since the Olympics start on Friday, why we have men's events and women's events. I mean, it's the irrationality of the liberal anti-God mindset because that's exactly what this is. As this verse begins, that, that rebellion is as the sin of divination. It is a rebellion is a sin because, as I pointed out last time, it goes back to Satan's original sin of rebellion against God. What can be more an expression of rebellion against God than to say that, that like Bruce Jenner, I'm a woman. You know, God made a mistake. I'm a woman. There's, there's a woman trapped in this body, and God was wrong. It's just a wonder God doesn't strike him dead like he, or turn him into a pillar of salt like, like Lot's wife. I mean, that, that's exactly the kind of arrogance that's going on here, the kind of rebellion against God that is, that is, that is going on here. So we have to recognize that there are these legitimate spheres of authority, and when we violate them, we are following in the footsteps of Satan. A reminder of these, we have... The, these are called divine institutions. They are the laws of establishment. They are for every human being throughout all of history, believer, unbeliever. When they're followed, there is stability. There's success to a degree. 
There is, uh, it, it protects the, the, uh, the culture to, be, to, to propagate and to grow and to develop. The first is personal or individual responsibility. Every individual is responsible and accountable to God and will be held accountable to God at some point in the future, either as a believer at the judgment seat of Christ, at the judgment of Old Testament saints, judgment of tribulation saints, or at the end of the millennium, the um, great white throne judgment. There's marriage. Marriage is designed to provide stability in the, the species for the propagation of the species and to provide the framework for education. God's standard is that education take place in the home. The sad thing is that most parents are so busy, or they think they are, that they don't have time to educate their children. Public school is simply something secondary. God isn't going to say, well, did, they, did your teachers do a good job educating your children? When you stand before God's judgment, the question is going to be, did you as a parent fulfill your responsibility to personally see to their education? He's not going to care about the Sunday school teachers. He's not going to care about the public school teachers because the one who's accountable for the training and equipping of the children within the family is the parents. The buck stops with daddy and then mommy. That's the family, the family unit. Now, those first three were all established in the Garden of Eden before anybody sinned. Then after sin, you needed two more. You needed government, the establishment of governing authorities. Now, somebody asked me one time, well, why do you have five? They were actually being kind of sarcastic. Why do you have five? So-and-so only has four. Well, that's because government was established in the Noahic Covenant, in Genesis chapter 9, some 200 years before God divided people up according to language. And we have to understand that you can't have the same divine institution that is developed with a 200-year split between these things. Furthermore, you ha- and, and the, the second part of that question was, how can you have government without a nation? I bet anybody here ought to be able to answer that. Well, you have patriarchal governing authority. You have tribal governing authority. You have city, county governing authorities. You have all kinds of governing authorities that don't involve a national or ethnic distinctions. But that came in later. So these have to be divided because they are clearly distinct both in time and in function. Nations have government, but government is not limited to the role of nations. So we look at what we studied last time, went through the first part of the verse, looking at the term rebellion, that this is a standard term, and it means to go against a specific legitimate authority, and that it is compared to divination. Divination, the word karam, is sometimes translated witchcraft or sorcery, but what it involves a divination is all the different kinds of fortune-telling, uh, palmistry, casting of lots, all kinds of different decisions. It's basically using demonism to determine the answers in life, trying to contact some spirit uh, in order to do that. In the Old Testament and in the ancient world, uh, you have spiritism, and spiritistic worldviews, animism, that dominate many of the cultures, polytheism, the polytheism of the, the Hittites, the Egyptians, the polytheism of the Babylonians and the Assyrians, and all of these other groups all had multiple gods that were part of, the, of what we would call nature. They were not distinct like the God of the Bible. That's why he's emphasized as a living God. They are part of the creation. And so contacting those gods was a violation. So they involved, this involved idolatry, which is why you have this kind of idolatry developed. And uh, two passages, Deuteronomy 18.10 and 2 Kings 17.17, 17, even relates this to uh, the sons and daughters who were passed through the fire. They took babies 
living babies and put them on the arms of these idols, and under the arms was a, was a fire pit. And it was ba- basically a, 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 um, a, a um, barbecue pit for immolating these, these children, and they did that. This kind of horror still happens today. I was reading a, a, a section today uh, from a book that was dealing with what, we, what happened in India after uh, Pakistan was, was severed because of the antagonism between the Muslims and the, uh, and the Hindus. And so in uh, about the same time that Israel was going through their war for independence, uh, Pakistan was set up, and, and part of the description was what they found when they would go into villages that had just been part of all of this fighting, and they would find where they had... They, they found babies that were just burned in the fire, open fire pits, and they had just put the babies into the fire. This kind of bestiality among human beings still goes on today. And uh, if, if we really knew what was going on by these vile ISIS uh, people, we would be sick to our stomachs. It is horrific. They are animals. So this is a comparison. We talked about divination last week. It's the attempt to use various secret or occult powers to determine the future. You're contacting demons, as it were. It's done through various things, astrology, various other signs, using dowsing sticks, uh, using palm reading, uh, reading the liver of a dead animal, hepatoscopy, uh, reading signs from casting out uh, arrows, bellomancy, consulting the dead, spiritism, or necromancy, and uh, all of these kinds of things. This kind of divination is prohibited numerous places in Scripture. Leviticus 19.26, 19.31, give no regard to mediums and familiar spirits. Uh, Leviticus 20.27, a man or woman who's a medium or who has familiar spirits will surely be put to death. Early in his, in his reign, Saul cleansed the land of mediums and spirits. But, but there's this hint of the occult that's in this passage and by the time we get to the last or next to the last chapter in First Samuel, he will go to the witch, the, the medium in Endor, uh, which is a small village up in the uh, uh, plain of, uh, of Megiddo, the Valley of Megiddo. And he'll go up there to get her counsel in light of the coming battle with the Philistines. But who's the real power behind these false gods? We look at idolatry from our from our modern or postmodern perspective, and we think, well, they're, they're just these, these wooden objects, metal objects, stone objects that they worship. They were imputing a personality and value and meaning to them, but that's not the divine viewpoint. The divine viewpoint is there's something going on there that is beyond our empirical data. And in passages like Leviticus 17.7, we read, they shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons. So when they're putting the babies to be burned alive in the arms of Malach or Chemosh or Baal, they're worshiping demons because what the text is saying is the demons, that these false religions are empowered by demons. Deuteronomy 32.17 uses the same phrase, a sacrifice to demons, not to gods. Second Chronicles 11:15. Then he appointed for himself uh, priests for the high places, for the demons and the calf idols which he had made. Think about that. He's equating demons to uh, idol worship. Same thing in Psalm 106:37. They even sacrifice their sons and their daughters to demons. Now, if you ask the typical uh, Israelite, "Are you immolating your baby?" To a demon, they'd say, "No, I, I'm worshiping the the Lord Baal. I'm not. I'm not sacrificing to demons. That'd be horrible." But the reality is that what's behind a false religion, what's behind a false philosophy, what's behind anything that supplants the worship of the living God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is demonism. Islam is demonism. Mormonism is demonism. 
Jehovah's Witness is demonism. All of this are different manifestations of demonism. Secular humanism is demonism. Postmodernism is demonism. Modernism is demonism. Existentialism is demonism. Anything other than biblical Christianity is demonism. That's what the Scripture says. If it's not based on the literal interpretation of the text, it's not true, and it's demonism. In 1 Corinthians 10.20, Paul validates this in the New Testament. Rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons, Paul says. So this is, this is a problem. When, when um, the text says that, that rebellion is like the sin of divination, it's because divination brings that intersection with the spirit world of the fallen angels and takes us back to uh, the uh, lead angel of the, uh, of the fallen angel of all the fallen angels. So ask the question, I think we ended here last time, why is rebellion compared to divination? And we need to go back to the um, angelic conflict. And this chart just shows the course of the angelic conflict. The angels are created, I believe, before Genesis 1-1, and that the fall of Satan occurred between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. It's the only place I think that makes sense, uh, either exegetically or theologically. Then man is created and man falls, and all of human history is related to... um, this fall of the angels, and that's why angels watch us, angels observe us, they learn things, uh, the scripture says from us that, that they can't learn any other way. Uh, Matthew twenty five forty one says that the lake, of, the lake of fire has been prepared, perfect tense, it's been completely prepared for the devil and his angels. It wasn't created for human beings. It has been, perfect tense, prepared for the devil and his angels. So sometime after Satan's fall, when God judged the fallen angels, he announced their guilt and their punishment to go to the lake of fire, created the lake of fire, and then for some reason there's a delay before they're being sent to the lake of fire. And in that delay is all of human history because human history is teaching why this is important. And I've had people ask this question, why in the world would you have eternal death in the lake of fire where somebody's going to suffer in the lake of fire for all eternity? You know, we don't believe in annihilationism. That's a violation of our doctrinal statement. It's a violation of the Word of God. Annihilationism is a time that they'll suffer for a while, and then their souls are just going to be annihilated. But this is an everlasting punishment that goes on forever and ever. Why so severe? That just doesn't sound like a loving God. Well, what God is demonstrating in history is that the, 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 the sin that caused all of the pain and all of the suffering and all of the misery, all of the violence that occurred in all of the most horrific things in the ancient world as the Assyrians came through and they, they flayed their enemies alive. That means that they, they skinned them alive. And, they, and, and just like American uh, Comanches did and Apaches did, they would lay them out and see how long they could keep a person alive and screaming as they skinned, as they slowly pulled the skin off of their bodies. Just think of the horror, the Holocaust, all of the horrible things that, that were done to the Jewish people during the Holocaust, one of the most horrible events that ever happened in, in, in human history. But there have been many, 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 many others. All of that is because of a simple decision that Adam made. He didn't commit genocide. He didn't commit infanticide. He didn't abort any babies. He didn't own slaves. He didn't honor the fallen heroes of the Confederacy or any of the other silly, superficial, cultural sins that people think of are so bad today. He didn't smoke. He didn't drink. He didn't chew or go with girls that do. I mean, what did he do that was so bad? He ate a piece of fruit. That's the point. Any act, no matter how 
minor and innocuous, that's an act of rebellion against God, rends the universe, brings corruption to every molecule and every atom in the universe so that everything is distorted by sin. Everything. And the punishment for someone who does that and who has brought all this there is in, in eternity in the lake of fire is mild, mild compared to the consequences that they have brought into the world. So what we see in our main passage on the fall of Satan is Isaiah fourteen twelve through 14. And what this chart, chart is showing is it's, it's, it's a convoluted passage to understand because Isaiah is talking in the past before the cross, but he's talking about what's going to happen in the future at the end of the tribulation period and how at that point they're looking back on this prince, this king that has led them and has now been cast uh, down here into the bottomless pit, into Sheol. And so that's the framework for understanding this. And this person that is uh, talked about here as king of Babylon is the one who is being personified here, and he's empowered by, by Lucifer. And the main text is uh, Isaiah fourteen twelve through 14, uh, where what he has what he's said in his heart in thirteen and fourteen is the essence of sin. I will five times. I will. That's rebellion. I will and not God will. That is the core original sin. It is rebellion against the authority of God. Now we looked at that last time, and I'm going to go past these charts again, and we're going to move into the uh, next part. Stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. This is, um, let me back up, I missed part of it. Stubbornness is this word patsar, which is translated stubbornness, and that's not really the meaning of the word. It's more the idea of being insubordinate, rebellious, defiant, or, or arrogant. And this is, uh, these, it's a synonym to the word for rebellion in the previous, uh, previous line. And so... The idea of insubordinate, based on the Oxford English Dictionary, is it, it's just a straight synonym. It means to be disobedient to authority, to be defiant, and to not be submissive to authority. What's the command we keep running into in the New Testament? Sub- husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, submit to your parents. Slaves, submit to your masters. Uh, citizens submit to government over and over again. That's the word. So the opposite is to be insubordinate. Uh, another word that is used to translate this word is the idea of being uh, presumptive. It's the idea of presumption. And one meaning of pre- there are various meanings to the word presumption. The second meaning is uh, presumption is bold or insolent behavior or manners. The military used to have a uh, court-martial offense called silent insolence back before World War II. And if you looked at your sergeant or your commanding officer in what they thought was an insolent manner, just because of the way you looked, you were headed for the brig. You were headed for a court-martial just because you had the wrong posture, the wrong attitude. They knew what it meant to teach humility and obedience to authority. So this is what what it said here. Uh, um, insubordination, defiance is sin and idolatry. So the first word is sin, aven, which is translated iniquity. And the New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis says that this word signifies also a negative or abuse of power or destructive power. So it's interesting how that word is used here, probably with that nuance. People would think of that, that that um, insubordination is an abuse of power. You're abusing your own power or position. And idolatry is the word teraphim, which are small household gods that were often a sign of inheritance and the sign of uh, passing on the family uh, the family jewels from one generation to another. Remember the story when uh, uh, when Jacob is fleeing from Laban 
and he's got uh, Rachel and Leah with him, and Leah's taken the household gods, the teraphim, and she hides them in the saddlebags. I think it was Leah. No, it was Rachel. Hides them in her saddlebags. See, that's his pagan idea that somehow we're going to, we're going to get the real power in the family with us. It's, it's, it's part of, it's idolatrous. And the reason that uh, Samuel says this is because you rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you. And this is the same word in both places, ma'as, which means to reject, to deny, or repudiate. This is a harsh statement. God has really lowered the boom on Saul, and he knows it that God has really rejected him, and as a result, he is immediately confessing his sin. Now, some of us have gone through something like this. We know we've disobeyed God, and God begins to punish us, and boy, we're like, I'm going to confess my sin and, and, and hope it'll all go away. Um, well, God forgives you instantly, cleanses you of all unrighteousness, but that doesn't necessarily remove the consequences. I think... Uh, he makes a mistake here. Saul never really understood the role of Samuel. Remember back in chapter 9 and chapter 10 when he, when he can't find his asses and, and they're getting lost and he's looking for them and his little slave servant says, well, we're near Ramah, which is the home of, of the seer, Samuel. And, it, and Saul's just oblivious. I mean, here's one of the greatest prophets and priests that have existed between uh, Moses and David. And... and Saul doesn't have a clue. And you can go through a number of things, and we did when we studied that, that Saul really was clueless about the role of the prophet and the priest and even who he was and what he did. He, he was just not interested. He was spiritually, uh, just spiritually dense. And so here he is. He's confessing to Saul, I mean to Samuel, but Samuel's not the high priest. Samuel's a Levite, but he's not an Aaronite. He can't forgive him. That's not his role. So he confesses, and it's a legitimate confession. He says, I've sinned, chata, which means I missed the mark. Notice we've already had aven as one word, one synonym for sin. Now we have chata, which is the main word for sin, to miss the mark or to fall, fall short. And he says, I've sinned, for I have, and then he's defining that sin as what it is. I have transgressed, that means to avar, I've passed over, or I have gone beyond the commandment of the Lord in your words. Why? Because of the peer pressure. I feared the people more than I did God. Now, some people think that he's just saying this to cover cover up his own irresponsibility, but it could be that he's also pressured by the people who clearly don't understand spiritual things, and maybe the people did pressure him. And this is often what we get from uh, politicians who run the country based on polls. And they listen to the words of the people and say, well, this is what the people want. See, they're not a leader. A leader understands true right and true wrong and leads the people even if they don't want to go. A true leader leads his people into combat. They follow him even if it's going to cost their life because they know they're trusting him to do the right thing. And we don't have a leader like that or very few in, in government. And so Saul was a failure as a leader and he's a failure as, as a believer. And he goes on to say to Samuel, therefore, please pardon my sin. This is the Hebrew word nasaf, which has the idea of lifting or carrying or taking a burden. And it's often used uh, to talk about removing the guilt of something. It's for being forgiven. And so he's saying, please forgive my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And um, at least he understands that, that, that he needs to be pardoned. Uh, this word is used in a great verse in Micah 7.18, talking about God. It says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? God can do that because Christ was going to pay the penalty for sin, and he could pardon it and pass over it. Uh, God is a God who does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. The Old Testament God is not pictured as this harsh, evil, paternalistic deity that's so concerned about justice that there's no mercy in love. That's not what's pictured here. 
But Samuel says, no, there are consequences to your sin. I'm not going to go back with you uh, to Gilgal. Uh, You've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord's rejected you from being king over Israel. He repeats that. He said, I'm not going, there are consequences to your sin. These are serious consequences. I'm not going back with you. And as Samuel turns, very dramatic, dramatic situation, Saul falls down and grabs his robe, trying to keep him from leaving. And he seizes the edge of his robe where the tassels were, and he grabs hold of a couple of these tassels, and they tear off. And Samuel looks down and, and, and uses this as the basis, almost like a parable. He says, as you've torn this from my robe, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who's better than you. Now, Saul will remain the legitimate king of Israel for the next 10 years. And twice David's going to get the opportunity to kill him, but David won't because he's the Lord's anointed and no human being has the right to take him from his throne. That's an important principle we'll see when it comes to respect for authority. David had tremendous respect for for Saul as the Lord's anointed, even if he was a loser, even if he was a failure, even if he was trying to kill David, which he was, even when Saul was, was doing everything wrong and had murderous intent and was involved in criminality. We don't know any leaders like that, I know. Even when he was involved in criminality, it never justified disrespect for the Lord's anointed. Never. We all need to take a lesson from that. And then Samuel says, and also the strength of Israel, he gives God a new title, Netzach. He is the power, the strength. He's the one who gives victory. He is the, it emphasizes the omnipotence of God. He is a strength and he will not lie nor relent. And that's the word that we see uh, here, Naham. And it's an anthropomorphism. It's used in Genesis 6. It says the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth. And that's not saying that he regrets it. it it's, it's an anthropopathism. It's expressing an attitude or an emotion that God doesn't actually possess in order to reveal something about God's policies and purposes and actions. It's a term of analogy. We can't understand God as he is, so these analogies are used to help us understand him better and make him a little more personable to us so that we can uh, grasp what's going on here. And again, in verse 30, I just want, I want to wrap this up. We'll just take a couple more minutes. Um, he again confesses his sin. He says, I've sinned. Chata. And this is what confession is. It's, it's uh, admitting your sin. And he pleads with Samuel, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. Now Samuel goes back with him. He's confessing. He can go back and he's personally cleansed. He can go back. He can legitimately worship God. And so they turn back and Saul worshiped the Lord. There's no hint of irony. It's not saying, Saul, what a hypocrite. He's confessed his sin. I believe that at this point, he was like many of us. He recognized he sinned, he failed, God's forgiven him, but there are consequences now. He has gone a bridge too far, and he worships God. And the word for worship all through here, I just wanted to add that there. It's that word shakak. It means to bow the knee, to show their submission to the authority of God. That's what worship is, and that's what we have there. And then Samuel Great scene in that movie, King David. Samuel tells him to bring Agag here. And so Agag, who's the king of the Amalekites, is the uh, situation that has arisen is because Saul didn't kill all the Amalekites. Agag comes and Agag thinks, he says to himself, I'm going to survive this. I'm going to live. I'm going to make it. Surely the bitterness of death is past. I've got, got it. He doesn't think a pastor, or excuse me, a prophet or a priest is going to kill him. And so Samuel says, as your sword has made women childless because you killed them, you killed their children, so shall your mother, your mother be childless among women. And, and it's an extremely picturesque and dramatic word in the Hebrew. And it means this. It means Samuel hacked Agag to pieces. He chopped him up into pieces 
And he does it, notice, before the Lord. Now, that's not a sacrificial term. It's the term related to harem. He is completing this, this war that God called them to do to completely ban, destroy uh, the enemies, the Canaanites. And so Samuel is finishing the job that Saul didn't finish. And he executes Agag. And this is divine viewpoint. You know, God and the prophets are not these sweet little mild people. Jesus isn't this sweet and gentle Jesus. That's not the picture that we have when we see Jesus go in and manhandle the money changers in the temple and throw them out. This is a picture of the judgment of God. So it concludes, Samuel goes home to Ramah. Saul goes home to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And then we're told Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. That's an important verse. Because there are people who say, well, that really wasn't Samuel that the witch of Endor called up. But what the text says here is that Samuel is not going to see Saul again until the day Saul dies. Samuel's going to die, go to the grave, but then God's going to allow the witch of Endor to call him back, and Samuel is going to announce to him that you're going to be with me this day. You are going to be defeated by the Philistines, and it's all over. So... Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul. See, there are some of us who may say, boy, Saul's getting just exactly what he deserved. That's a pharisaical attitude. Samuel is grace-oriented. He understands what could have happened, what God, how God could have blessed Israel through Saul, and what a tragedy it is. And he feels it to the core of his bones and he deeply laments and mourns over Saul and what has happened. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that is a grace-oriented and a godly attitude that we shouldn't just say, well, it's his volition, he's getting what he deserved. That's not how grace-oriented Samuel felt, and that's not how we should feel. And the Lord also, Naham, regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And this is, again, an anthropopathism, but it's showing that, that uh, just as God regretted making man, not that he, he truly regretted, but that he, in his permissiveness he allowed it to happen, but it's not his ideal will. That's the idea. It's not what he desired for Israel. So next time we'll come back. And we'll get into the next chapter in chapter 16, which is when we get to make the big shift to start talking about David. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight and to understand that, that how important it is to submit to your authority, to submit to the authorities you've established over us for your glory and because it is the right thing to do. Father, help us to look at the issues related to politics in our lives as well as the different spheres of authority in which we operate, that we may learn to be submissive to, to those authorities, especially when uh, they're not doing things just exactly the way we wanted them to do. Not that it's wrong, but then we need to obey you uh, and obey them because that's how you work in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.